when you have the whole beautiful book of literature that is known as the Bible, it can be tempting to stick with some of the glorious, lovely passages of comfort. The Lord is my shepherd. The Psalms, I will lift up my eyes to the hills. The reminders that we know where we go, we, we can flee from God's presence. But there are other scripture passages that are more fierce and more disturbing. We've heard Jeremiah's lament. We hear these words from Matthew today. And we are compelled to not always skip over them, but to read them and wrestle with them. It is one reason the Christian faith has lasted 2,000 years and will keep on going, because we do not fully grasp everything that these scriptures reveal to us. We must still continue to address them and hear how they speak to our lives and then go forth in the world and return over and over again. So the gospel reading today is from Matthew chapter 10. Let us listen for the word of the Lord. So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered up that will not be uncovered, and nothing is secret that will not become known. What I say to you in the dark, tell in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim from the housetops. Everyone, therefore, who acknowledges me before others, I also will acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever denies me before others, I also will deny before my Father in heaven. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and one's foes will be members of one's own household. Whoever loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever does not take up the cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Those who find their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Perhaps you know this joke. It was a normal Sunday morning. The congregation had gathered. The choir had gathered. The preacher had stood up to preach. And suddenly a woman started crying out, Amen, Alleluia, praise the Lord. This made people a little bit nervous, so an usher kind of went over to her and bent down and said, excuse me, ma'am, but we don't really usually cry out like that. Are you all right? Yes, I am, she replied. The usher got a little bit flustered and said, well, would you mind keeping it down a bit? The woman replied, I cannot. I have got the spirit. And the usher, thoroughly bewildered, said, well, ma'am, that might be well and good, but you did not get it here. Or perhaps you have seen this cartoon. There are two panels of a stick figure pastor in a pulpit with stick figure congregation. In the first panel, the pastor says, who wants change? And everyone answers, we do. In the next panel, the pastor says, who wants to be changed? Crickets. (laughs) We might chuckle at these things because we all know that change is hard that something different can be disturbing, can fluster us. We could share this joke and this cartoon in many different settings, in many different churches, and it would strike a chord. Change is disturbing, and a lot of us resist it. 
Because we've had a couple thousand years to get used to the idea, we can forget that Jesus the Christ himself was disturbing. In many ways, when Jesus appeared on the scene in first century Palestine, he was following in the footsteps of a long line of Jewish teachers and prophets. People thought they knew this man from Nazareth. They thought they had his number. They knew what to expect. But then he would go right when they'd expect him to go left. He would zig when they would expect him to zag. We might expect that this anointed one would work hard to keep himself clean and pure, above rebuke and safe. But he talks to a hemorrhaging woman, a Samaritan woman, a woman about to be stoned. He invites a tax collector to dinner. He heals a Roman official's daughter. He goes towards Jerusalem as death threats mount. Jesus was the person that the people had been taught to anticipate And he was also so much more. He was both more gentle and more provocative. He was more puzzling and more scoutingly blunt and straightforward. This is particularly true of Jesus as he is written about in the Gospel of Matthew. One of the reasons we need four different Gospels, four different sets of stories about Jesus is because they all illuminate a different side of this multifaceted, mind-bending person, this word made flesh, Emmanuel, God with us, this Messiah. In Mark, the first gospel written, Jesus comes across as on an urgent mission. He dashes across the desert landscape doing signs and wonders and shushing people up about what he is doing. In Luke, Jesus travels far and wide, meets fascinating characters, tells interesting stories, reaches out to unexpected disciples. Luke takes time to show us who this Jesus is, not just tell us. In John, Jesus likes to go on talking for a long time, but he also teaches about God, the Spirit, the life of discipleship with some of the most deeply poetic gorgeous language found anywhere in scripture. And in Matthew? In Matthew, Jesus is blunt, straightforward. He will not suffer fools gladly. In Matthew, Jesus has some things to say, and he is going to say them, even if they ruffle feathers, even if they disturb the peace. Jesus here speaks with all the conviction, all the compulsion that we hear from the prophet Jeremiah. The words of God cannot be shut up in his bones. They burn. They must be shared with us here and now. Jesus in this gospel is not worried about offending the authorities. He keeps calling out hypocrisy and self-righteousness. He keeps pointing at those in power and shouting serpents, hypocrites, goats, until they drag him off stage. So the words of Jeremiah in our Old Testament passage and the words of Jesus in our Matthew passage today might come across as a little harsh. Their fierce language might turn us off. It can be hard to listen to these verses. It can be particularly hard to hear Jesus, the one we think of as the gentle shepherd, this Jesus using language that cuts us like a knife. Jesus in Matthew's gospel is not messing around. Jesus strides onto the scene, plants his two feet firmly, and says, you, 
I am talking to you, yes you. Pay attention, listen, look. I did not come to make you feel warm and fuzzy about yourself. I did not come to make you feel peaceful. I came here to be the top priority in your life. I came here to get you to follow me. I came here for you, all of you, every part of you, your whole life, and I will stand for nothing less. In Matthew, Jesus looks at us, talks directly to us, points at us, and demands that we respond. We live in a world where many things seem to demand a response or reaction from us. Email slings around the globe and chirps at us from our phone a few seconds later. Political sound bites are unloaded on the news as soon as the first press conference finishes. Constant text messages and social media all make us feel guilty if we don't respond right away within a few minutes. How many of you have replied at some point, oh, I'm sorry, I've taken so long to respond, even if it has been fewer than 24 hours? Almost all of us have come to expect immediate responses, both of ourselves and others. We feel guilty for taking time to craft a more thoughtful reply No matter who we are or where we are from, we are keeping all of us a lot of plates spinning at the same time, priding ourselves on how many times we can say, oh, I'm so busy, I'm so stressed. All of the studies over and over again show that this is the go-to response. How are you? Busy. We are busy trying to figure out how to respond to everyone. We are stressed trying to keep everyone happy. And we can get both busy and stressed trying to find time, any time, even a few minutes, to tend to our spiritual life. A few thousand years before studies were done on productivity and efficiency, Jesus already knows that multitasking is a lie. Jesus knows that choosing to focus on many things means focusing on nothing. Jesus knows that people who try to keep everyone happy will make no one ultimately happy. Jesus knows that in order for his words to cut through the cloud of notifications that are buzzing around our body at every moment, sometimes we need to get shaken up a bit to hear words that disturb us, that ruffle our feathers, that might hit a little too close to home. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus is looking us in the eye and saying, I have a mission and a plan for you. Yes, you, no one else will do. I have a plan and a call. I have a mission. You are the one that I need. Pay attention, listen, look. I'm not here to make you feel good or peaceful. I am not here to let you put blinders on I come to bring a sword. I come to cut away everything that you are putting above me in your life. I come to stir things up. I come to disturb the peace. And when I am done with you, you will not look at God, your family, your community, your government, your call, your very life in the same way. Now, it must be said that this line about Christ bringing a sword has been misinterpreted by many including, most recently, 
Jerry Falwell Jr. used this line to encourage college students to arm themselves to kill Muslims. This is using the Lord's name in vain. This usage is sacrilegious. Jesus does talk about bringing a sword here, and we might recoil from these words, but truly there is no indication that Jesus meant this any more than a dramatic turn of language to get our attention, to shake us awake, to make us listen to him. There is no historic evidence that Jesus ever carried a weapon. We never hear about him striking other people or telling his disciples to wipe out a village if they reject him or to harm anyone. In fact, the gospel writers made sure to write down the story where Jesus tells Peter to put away his weapon, a sword that, Jesus, that Peter had drawn to stand his ground against the Roman soldiers. Jesus tells Peter to put the sword away immediately. And Jesus never formed a militia, despite the fact that many people wanted him to do so, despite the fact that many people expected him to do so. They thought Jesus was going to be like Judas Maccabeus, that he would ride in and rescue Jerusalem with military might, leaving a whole crowd of people cheering in his wake. Jesus let a lot of people down by not forming a militia. I had a professor, an atheist Jewish professor, who pointed out that Jesus was not the first or the last person to promise to be the Messiah, the anointed one, who promised to be bringing God's kingdom and leading the way. But this professor, again, an atheist, a Jewish man, said that the things that set Jesus apart, the things that made Jesus most remarkably unique, were the things that spoke to his radical pacifism. Dr. Eric Myers said no one else had combined Jesus' teachings, his declarations about the coming kingdom of God with a steadfast commitment to not raise a militia, to not lead people into battle. Jesus puts his own body on the line before allowing his disciples to lift a sword. In this scripture, Jesus promises a sword because he knows he'll be divisive, that he will be polarizing he knows that some people will hear what he has to say and they will ignore it. They would rather say, I'm just too busy or I must focus on my own family. He knows that some people will hide in back rooms and make deals that only lift up the rich and privileged in society rather than the people Christ tells us to care for. Jesus knows that he will be divisive. His words might divide even families. And note again, Jesus does not say that families are unimportant. In other scripture passages, he lifts up the little children as something to be valued. He lifts up the bond of marriage as a wondrous and steadfast bond. He upholds the law, which includes the commandment to honor thy father and mother. Jesus is not saying that families are unimportant. What he is saying is that loving Christ and following God's call in your life will lead us away from focusing only on our own family. Jesus is not saying that families should be broken up. What he is saying is that following Christ will completely break apart our priorities, our allegiances, our ranking of important relationships in our life. 
Following Jesus means losing our previous ways of defining and labeling our relationships in the world. Who we prioritize as brothers and sisters, as sons and daughters, as neighbors and friends, will be cut up by the sword of Christ. Who we believe we are responsible for will be radically changed. We can no longer close up our hearts and put on our blinders and pretend that we're protected from caring about the world, about other people. After hearing these words in Matthew, we will realize that we will not be able to stand before the Lord of heaven and earth on the day of judgment and say, you know, I really tried, but I just couldn't find the time to do what you said. I just wanted to focus on my own family. I didn't really think you meant what you said about caring for those other people, the sick, the poor, the thirsty, the hungry, the least of these among us. This defense will not stand up before the Lord of heaven and earth. After Christ comes into the center of our lives, after we take up our cross, after the Spirit cuts away anything that separates us from God, then we will have to stitch together a new understanding of family and relationship, of community and care, one which might look very different than what we expect. I've quoted the Reverend Nadia Boltz Weber before, and I will probably quote her again. She came to fame a few years ago as the tall, tattooed Lutheran pastor of House for All Saints and Sinners in Denver, Colorado, which those letters, H-F-A-S-S, I will let you sound out for yourself. That's what she lovingly calls her church. Here's what she says about her congregation in an interview with Krista Tippett. She says, I feel like the Christian life is a life of continual death and resurrection. I think some sectors of Christianity think, well, you're saved and then you're good, right? And then you just lead a really nice life and you're a good person and you're redeemed and you sort of climb this spiritual ladder towards God getting closer and closer. And that has just not been my experience. My experience is that of disruption over and over again of going along and thinking I got it right and then tripping up on something that I think I know or that I'm certain about and realizing how wrong I am. Over and over again, I experience what I call a sort of divine heart transplant. You know, it's like God replaces my heart of stone with a heart of faith. The prophets speak of this. It is not a polite experience. Here's an example from my own church. When my church was mostly young adults, it was sort of, you know, hip, urban young adults. And then I preached at some big venues and got written up, and our church got a lot of attention. And we had originally only had about 40 or 45 people every week. But then, what seemed like overnight, we doubled in size. And we were excited because we were really struggling to grow. But what happened is we started to grow with the wrong kind of people. And I mean it was the wrong kind of different from us. Some churches would freak out if the drag queens show up. But these were bankers wearing dockers. And I flipped out. She said, I would call my friends and I'd rant about it, about what am I going to do? And I called my one friend who's at a similar type of church in St. Paul, Minnesota. And I said, Russell, dude, have you ever had normal people take over your church? <laughs> and so I go on and on and I tell him the story and I expect him to be like, yeah, that stinks. And instead he says, yeah, 
You guys are really good at welcoming the stranger when it comes to a young transgender kid, but sometimes the stranger looks like your mom and dad from the suburbs. And I was like, you're supposed to be my friend. I'm hanging up now. I felt like God was reaching in and yanking out my heart of stone and replacing it with a heart of flesh, like something that was actually warm and beating again. And we had a meeting of the whole church to discuss the changes to our congregation. And I told that story. And then everyone went around in a circle. And Asher, one of our longtime members, said, Look, as the young transgender kid who was welcomed into this community, I just want to go on record as saying, I'm glad there's people who look like my suburban traditional mom and dad here because they love me in a way my mom and dad cannot. Nadia concludes, I was worried because the normal people were coming to my church. I was worried they would make it more normal, but the thing is, our church now is such a freak show. You walk in and you will see a convicted felon serving communion to a statewide elected official next to a teenager with pink hair holding the baby of a soccer mom from the suburbs. And I thought the weirdness of my congregation was going to be diluted. It's only weirder now. Jesus the Christ is unlike any celebrity, politician, church leader, parent, teacher that we have seen before. Jesus the Christ is here now not trying to make us feel cozy and comfortable and complacent. Jesus is here to change everything we think we know about our neighbor our faith, our relationships, our family, our politics, our lives. Jesus the Christ is leading us to a community that will be different, more weird, more profound, more stunning, more expansive, more beautiful than any that we have seen before. We don't want to change. But Christ is here, and he will not be satisfied until he has cut to shreds every assumption we have, every expectation we carry. We don't want to change, but Christ is here like a sword, shearing away all the blinders we put on our eyes, all the barriers we put around our hearts. We don't want to change, but Christ is here like a sword, cutting away our protections, our defenses, our declarations that I'm just too busy or I only need to focus on my own family. We don't want to change, but Christ is here like a sword, piercing our self-reliance, our self-sufficiency, our self-congratulations. We don't want to change, but Christ is here like a sword, cutting up every single one of our neat and tidy labels until we finally, finally begin to see even the least, the last, and the lost as our beloved sisters and brothers in Christ. Christ is standing here saying, shut up, pay attention, listen and look and follow me. I have a plan for you. Yes, you. This is disturbing news, but this is also good news. This is news that it will take us a lifetime to understand. And this is why Jesus the Christ is standing here not finished with us yet. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Holy Spirit, 
Like the prophet Jeremiah describes, you have put a fire in our bones. You have put a claim on our lives. We often want to ignore this fire, to respond to other calls, to answer other demands, but you keep showing up. Show us how to prune away all our defenses and open our hearts. Show us how to shear away all that separates us from you. Show us how to follow you. In your holy name we pray. Amen.